0: Well, it's the beginning of the fall, Uh, kids are back in school, Um, Man, a ton of sports started up in our home, I don't know what the fall feels like for you, but uh, it's a bit of a rush already, Um, and we have a couple critical things uh, for the church coming up that I wanted to highlight uh, for us, we've got them uh, here. Uh, is the first one. Uh, the first is uh, college students are back. So what we do every year, yeah, yeah, we can clap for the college students. About half of them are here and then half of them came first to Glad you guys are back. Um, we, we do adopt a college student every year. So uh, it's been a blast, both for college students and for families and community groups and individuals who have adopted them. So, uh, adopting quotes. Here's what you do: uh, we have sign-ups in the back, and so uh, maybe your family or your couple singles or a community group that said, "Hey, we want to uh, adopt a college student." All that means is, and we've got job descriptions for you too to give you some info on that. Uh, is that you'll kind of do care packages when exams come up uh, after lunch or after Sunday uh, worship, sometimes you take a college student out to lunch, that kind of thing, uh, whoever your adopted student is, and you build relationship. You know, uh, for me in college, uh, it was the Everts family. They were awesome. Uh, they just brought me into their home and my my buddy Chris, and uh, they just cared for us, built relationship with us, and uh, encouraged us around exam time. But then, You know, it wasn't just a joy for a relationship, but it was really critical for our faith, too. Uh, They helped our faith grow and what's it look like to to raise a family and a faith, that kind of stuff. Uh, They were a great model for that. So uh, if you want to sign up to be someone who adopts a college student, please sign up uh, this afternoon. We'll have those going for a couple weeks here. And then also, if you're a college student and want to be adopted, uh, which means free food, right, So, uh, and good relationship, uh, you can sign up in the back, too, for that. Uh, We also also have a college uh, cookout on the 18th, so... Uh, that is that. Uh, the second announcement is this. Uh, heading into the fall, we have Thrive classes coming up, a whole slew of them, uh, four really good ones. So I want to highlight those. The so first first is uh, Faith, Gender, and Sexuality. It's a one-day Thrive on... Uh, September 17th. That's a Saturday. We're going to actually host it at 4C Church, just north of here, and that's going to be a great uh, a time, particularly uh, for parents as we raise our kids uh, in this atmosphere of sexuality. What you know? How do you raise your kids, and what is uh, being taught, and all that kind of stuff, and, and how to navigate those waters. Uh, the second is faith in politics. Um, November is coming, and you know that because you live in D.C. Uh, there's a, there's a lot kind of uh, Going around about that, we're just going to say, hey, what's it look like to be uh, a follower of Jesus and how does that interact with politics and your vote and all that kind of stuff? Um, Then Missions Thrive, October 23rd. Uh, These are all four or five-week Thrives, and then there's more about that coming up. And then um, Exploring Christianity, Uh, this is starting on November 13th. That's a great one to invite a friend to. Uh, where you can kind of say, hey, they don't yet know Jesus, so they're asking kind of questions about spirituality, uh, you can invite a friend to that. And also we're going to cover kind of the core aspects of Christianity there too. Uh, so if that's something you want to grow in, that's a great spot to do so. All right, uh, that's, that's a whole bunch of stuff coming this fall, and, and there's more. Go to the What's Happening page and uh, catch up on everything. And one of my favorite parts about the fall is we always start a new series, and this one I'm super excited about, and it's in... The gospel of Mark and I just want to pray for us before we get into it. Let's pray. Father, uh, we just know that, that folks are coming in walking in from many different points in their faith and many different places in their lives. And so this morning, God, if You know, God, there are people here questioning faith or or never been in a relationship with Jesus. We just pray that you would meet them this morning. God, there are people here who have have been in a relationship for years and now it's just super stale. We pray that you would meet them. God, there there are people here who have been following Jesus and, and it's really going great these days. And God, would you meet them as well? God, would you meet each one of us wherever we're at? We're so thankful that you run, you move towards us by your grace. God, thank you for the Gospel of Mark. God, thank you for the picture that it gives us of who your son is as he walked this earth and what he cared about. And God, we pray we'd meet him this morning as we talk about the Gospel of Mark. And God, we, we pray that you would hit us with the most important question that we might ever ask ourselves in our lives that you draw us to yourself. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning I'm going to introduce you to my best friend. And I know that sounds a little cheesy when you're talking about Jesus. <laughs> but I want us to meet uh, my best friend this morning in the book of Mark. And I'm also going to ask us the most important question that you'll probably ever answer in your life. And we're going to do that in the book of Mark. And that really matters. Uh, it matters that Jesus is quite literally your best friend. I mean, It matters when... When your husband abandons you, it matters then. Uh, It matters when you don't feel the embrace of your wife the way you long for. It It matters in your singleness and, and maybe your loneliness. It matters that he is your best friend. Uh, it matters when you lose your job, or when you 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 ascend to the highest places of your job, and it's it's not enough. It matters then that he is your best friend. It matters even when just things are going swimmingly, perfect, and you're so excited, like, and you want someone to share it with. It matters then that he's your best friend. It really matters that Jesus is your best friend. Uh, so I want us to meet him this morning in the the book of Mark. I want to kind of see who he is because he, he shuns people that man we think he'd be buddy-buddy with and and then he embraces people we think he would run away from and and, and it, it, we just kind of I I think when you look at the gospel of Mark we get this picture of him we say oh man I love him or maybe you're repulsed by him and some of what some people sometimes say resonates with me, which is, I love Jesus, I just don't like the church. <laughs> As we read through the Gospel of Mark, maybe you'll see some of that too. And so we've geared this whole series that, that you and I, we, we would grow in our relationship with Jesus. We go really deep in our relationship with Jesus, that, that He's a real person we can get to know and, and He might radically transform our lives. So, uh, you know, we... Uh, give these free journals away. They're in the back at the welcome table. You can snag one. Our hope is that you'd read throughout the week, and, and, and then on Sunday mornings you'd take notes, and you'd get to know this person of Jesus. You wouldn't just be reading words on a page, but you'd get, get to know a person. Uh, so we've given these journals uh, for that uh, uh, use and then uh, we've got the King's Cross uh, curriculum, and this is uh, goes through the whole series, uh, and it's just a simple way to read through the Gospel of Mark and get to know Christ in the process. And it's also got questions you can discuss in a group and things like that as well. And then lastly, a book that we found really helpful is Jesus the King by Tim Keller. It's a fantastic, it's kind of a commentary, but uh, I hesitate to say that because it's really fun to read. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really wonderful book that gets into the gospel of Mark and the life of Jesus, which uh, we'll enjoy personally as Jesus followers uh, or as you kind of investigate your faith here in who Jesus is. Uh, but it's also great, and there's a one-page discussion guide. It's a great kind of resource to invite folks who don't yet know Jesus to engage with them as you read this book together about who he is in his life. So those are some resources, all with the intention and desire that we would get to know Jesus. Because, I man, if you're dry today in your relationship with Christ, it's because you probably don't know him that well. And you're not getting to know him day in and day out. You might be struck with anxiety or anger today. You don't know what to do with that. And this is a time to get to know Jesus a bit better than you do now. This series is geared that you would get to know Christ and he'd change your life. So let's get into it. This is Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel. Uh, This is the beginning. It's not just kind of uh, the temporal or time beginning, but this is kind of uh, the culmination or new start, a qualitative kind of beginning where uh, everything we've been waiting for, remember we were in this series in the Old Testament uh, this summer, the good, bad, and the ugly, and how everyone and everything pointed forward to Jesus. And then at the end of the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, we've got this uh, promise that this prophet is going to come and he's going to pave the way for the Lord. It's the very kind of words we just read at the beginning of Mark, found in Malachi and in Isaiah. But then there's silence after the end of the Old Testament, and everyone's waiting. And then Mark breaks in and he says, this is the beginning. This is what we've all been waiting for. This is the fresh start, the culmination of all that God had prepared to do, he is now doing in Christ. This is the start of the whole story, the start of your life being transformed and the whole world being transformed. This is the beginning, what we've all been waiting for, of what? Of the gospel. Euangelion is the Greek word, and, and Mark knows uh, there's really two main ways that this word, euangelion, or gospel, good news, is being used at the time. Uh, the first way it's being used is this uh, military uh, victory. What, what would happen is you'd have this parade, and, and everyone would march down the streets, and you'd say, The good news is, the euangelion is, we conquered them, we won, the battle's over, we're the winners. Galeon, good news everyone our whole lives are changed we're no longer in war we win uh, then there's this other way it's used as euangelion the hey good news our emperor was born today it's kind of announcing his birthday typically All right so uh, there was this real high view of emperors that they were like god himself and so uh, you would march to the street and say the good news is it's his birthday let's celebrate he's changed our lives Mark is probably latching on to those two things. Uh, Everything is different. Everything is new. We've won the battle. Uh, The greatest one we've ever waited for is here. It's good news. It's the beginning of the good news. Of who? Of Jesus Christ. Of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This whole book is about Him. It's the beginning of a seismic shift in history in the historic person of Jesus. Jesus. Man, it's good news. Uh, the book is written by John Mark along with Peter. Uh, so uh, uh, we know this because the earliest uh, church fathers talk about, hey, John Mark writes this thing and he's doing it along with Peter. So they're all kind of uh, corresponding about this idea in the first and second century. And and John Mark, we meet him in the book of Acts. We meet him in different epistles where he's mentioned by Paul and others. And and he's this guy who kind of goes around with Paul and Barnabas. Uh, he, he, he travels kind of all of the Middle East uh, early with Paul and Barnabas, and, and and they talk with everyone about Jesus, who's just lived, died, and resurrected. And they're like, man, you got to get to know Jesus, and, and, and John Mark is one of those guys. He's good friends with Peter. At the end of 1 Peter, uh, Peter mentions him. He's like, man, John Mark, you and I, we were crushing it in Rome. It was amazing. And so we know they're good friends, uh, Peter, and, and we know that they write this book together. So... Uh, John Mark, some, uh, another cool fact is uh, in Acts we, we read that his mother is Mary and, and that she has this really big house in Jerusalem. And she often hosts the disciples there in Jerusalem. And so John Mark is probably there uh, with his mom as, as the disciples are gathering and maybe even gathering uh, that last week of Jesus' life when he has communion there, uh, right before his death. John Mark may have been there with Mary, his mom, at this big house in the center of Jerusalem where she often hosted the disciples. That's John Mark. He's not, in a sense, one of the apostles or one of those eyewitnesses, but he certainly has eyewitness accounts of Jesus. And then he teams up with Peter, and who is just Jesus' right-hand man, in a sense. They write this book together. somewhere in the, It's the first gospel that's written, probably mid-60s it's written. It's before the, uh, the destruction of the temple in AD 70. That's not mentioned here. But, uh, you know, he's, he's writing to these Romans in the area that aren't yet Christians. And he's, you know, he'll talk about uh, different Jewish traditions. But then he knows because he's writing to Romans that they probably don't understand it. So he'll back up and he'll explain it a bit, that kind of thing. So this is John Mark writing with Peter in the mid-60s. And, and he's writing in a way where he presents kind of a structure where Jesus is up in Galilee, his hometown. And he spends these first kind of eight, eight and a half chapters talking about Jesus up in Galilee in his hometown. He's healing people. He's famous. I mean, it's going great. And it's like sunny days for Jesus. And then about midway through, there's this pivot. And Jesus starts talking about his death and his resurrection. And they head, as the text will say, in the road to Jerusalem. Where, where there's really this disproportionate amount of time in the Gospel of Mark spent on this last week of Jesus' life. And it focuses in on who Jesus is as he heads towards the cross. So that's the author, the date, and the structure, and the audience of the Gospel of Mark. But here's what I love. In the Gospel of Mark, you meet Jesus. <laughs> and he's amazing. there's these kind of moments where he just draws you in or he convicts you like crazy. You say, oh, man, I didn't think he would have done that. And I want to just take a look at a handful of these of of just how awesome Jesus is through the gospel of Mark. Uh, The first is this. The disciples, man, as we read it, are idiots. They're idiots. (laughs) I looked for a different word. I did. This was not sloppiness. I, I looked for a different word. But this one captures it. Because and here's what I thought of. I was uh, thinking, I, I'm around the dinner table just this past week, and I'm like, hey, let's pray. And everyone's yelling and screaming and, and food. is not quite flying across the table, but it's almost there. And I go, you guys are idiots. And here's what I meant by it. Oh, I can't stand what you're doing right now, but I love you so much. All at the same moment, it's like this kind of affectionate head slap. Oh, my gosh, you goons. Uh, there are those moments in the book of Mark where Jesus looks at his disciples and he's like, you goons. But then there's also moments too where he is not just, it's not affectionate at all actually. This, this word in the Greek is indignant. He's just straight angry with them for not getting it at some moments. The disciples are idiots. I, I, I think of this one story where it's in Mark chapter 6. You know jesus he they 're there with a crowd of five thousand people, and they all they have is a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish and he 's like we've got to feed this crowd and the disciples are like, "How are we going to feed them and then boom, Jesus does it, and they collect just tons of extra bread and fish, and he feeds five thousand through them and, and then a couple days later and a couple chapters later in Chapter 8, uh, the same thing happens. There's 4,000 people there, and, and the disciples just have a little bit of food, and they gather, and then, and then boom, he feeds them again. And there's more than necessary. and They're overflowing with leftovers, and then they're heading across the Sea of Galilee. Remember, they're up north in the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus' hometown is. They're, they're heading across that sea, and they start talking. Now they're going across the sea they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them. In the boat for the 12 of them and Jesus. And Jesus cautioned them saying, hey, here's where we're headed. Watch out. Beware of the leaven, that has to do with bread, of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Hey, watch out for these guys and their teaching. You don't want to kind of get sucked into what they're about is what he's saying. And the disciples began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, so here's the scene. They're saying, oh, he's so mad we forgot bread. I bet he's going to get hungry. How are we going to eat? And Jesus, aware of this, said, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and don't see and ears and don't hear? Don't you remember when I broke five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12 baskets full. We had so much left over. And the seven loaves for the 7,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up then? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? I've got this, right? Jesus is saying, it's okay. You forgot the bread. We're going to be okay. Uh, You you, can picture him going, oh, my gosh. Uh, Here's what I love. Their their chief leader, Peter, is their chief of sinners. He's full of blunders after blunders. You know, when Jesus uh, reveals himself of who is he, he's the Christ, and Peter gets it right, and and Jesus is like, bullseye, you got it right, Peter. And then Jesus is going to go on and say, now I'm going to go die for your sins. And Peter says in front of all the disciples, no, you're not, Jesus. We won't let you die. You can't die. And Jesus looks right at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Then there's this other time. Peter is up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is up there in all of his glory with Moses and Elijah. And it's an amazing moment. And Peter's like, we should build tents and stay here. And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? We got, we got work to do. The whole point is I'm showing you who I am because now I'm going to go die. And it's like, Peter, what are you doing? And then Peter, at Jesus' time of most urgent need, Peter runs scared and leaves his closest friend to on a cross by himself. And there's this little girl around a fire who comes up to Peter and is like, don't you know him? Aren't you one of his followers? And Peter says, no, I have nothing to do with this, Jesus. And he even says, he, he brings down curses from heaven on this gal and himself saying, I swear to you, I don't know this guy, nothing to do with me. Their chief leader is a chief sinner. The disciples all through this whole thing, just full of blunders and mixed up and stumbling forward, then backward. I think of this time, you know, they're they're in this crowd and it's, it's, it's packed and Jesus is walking through and. And some lady comes up who's got a disease and touches him on the back of his cloak and he's healed by her power. And Jesus goes, who touched me? Right? This is a teachable moment he's going to step into. It. The disciples are like, Jesus, what are you talking about who touched you? There's people touching you all over the place. You're in a crowd. And he's like, oh my gosh. Three times he brings up his death. He's gone. He says, I'm going to die for you guys. I'm going to pay for the penalty of sins for the world. Every time, he's, he's like, he's literally, he's like talking about this. The next sentence is every time, the three times it's brought up in chapters 8, 9, and 10. The disciples, the, the immediate next thing they say is, we're pretty awesome, aren't we? The, the second time, they're like, hey, Jesus, yeah, enough about the dying thing. Who's the greatest? Peter thinks it's him. I don't think so. I think it's probably me, John. That's like right after he's talking to him In some, here's why I'm so glad as I read the gospels, that the disciples are a bunch of idiots. Jesus' embrace is not contingent on our performance. His embrace is not contingent on your performance. He loves us. He loves you so deeply. It's His faithfulness that, that matters. It's His grace that matters. It's His mercy that matters. You and I, we keep falling short over and over again. And He keeps saying, come on in and be loved and embraced and transformed into newness of life. His embrace is not contingent on our performance It might be what I love most about the Gospel of Mark. Oh, what a Savior we have. Oh, what a Savior we have. As we read the Gospel of Mark, here's what I love as well. The patterns and the idiosyncrasies of Jesus' life. Because as, as I see his life and his little idiosyncrasies, kind of what makes him him, I, I both want to kind of emulate his example, but I'm also really convicted. But, but at the same time as I'm convicted, I'm like drawn towards a new way of living. And, and I just see the way he lives and, and, and what he's about. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Like desolate place. It keeps coming up through the whole gospel. This, this desert place or a place away, a place of silence. All through the gospel, Jesus keeps hanging out in silence in these critical moments And when it kind of seems counterintuitive that he should step away, he does. You know, at the beginning of his ministry, you're you're thinking, oh, you were just baptized, the heavens were open, go get him, Jesus. And he goes off into the wilderness. Or, But right before he picks his 12 disciples, this critical moment, what's he do? He goes up onto the mountaintop to sit at the Father's feet. Over and over again, he's like getting more and more famous. The disciples are like, let's keep this rolling. And he's like, i got to go find a desolate place to sit with my Father. Over and over. And I'm like, dang, I should learn from that. It's counterintuitive, but there's life at the Father's feet before we find ourselves in His service. I'm like, man, I love that about Jesus. What else do I love? I, he's fully present. Everywhere He is, He's just fully present. Gosh, I love that about Jesus. He's, he's walking by and he sees this fig tree and he's like, I'm going to teach a story. It's right here. You guys are right here. We're going to be fully present this moment. And he teaches his story through this fig tree. He, he walks near the, the temple stones and he's there and he's like, hey, let me teach you something about me, Jesus, a temple, a place where you're going to meet God. And, and he talks about the stones. And, and all these different moments he finds himself fully present. He like, walks by a vineyard. He talk, tells a story about a vineyard and, and what it teaches about God and his people. Everywhere he is, he knows right where he is with the people with whom he is with and what they need. I love how he interacts with people and his full presence with them. There's this time, this this, uh, rich young ruler, you would think he's got it all going for him. He's like this legalist, he's keeping all the commandments and and he's rich so God must be pleased with him but, but he's really missing salvation and Jesus is talking with him and it's becoming evident at that point. And there's this little phrase, Jesus, it says Jesus looked at him and he loved him. I, I want that kind of presence with the people I'm around. Like there, there's this time that blind Bartimaeus in Jericho, he, he, he's, he's, he's yelling out, God, Jesus, uh, son of David, have mercy on me. And, and Jesus is walking by and he hears it. He, he stops everything. And he's like, Bring that guy to me. I want to be with him. And then he says to the guy, What do you want from me? He just opens him up, uh, himself up to this guy that everyone else walks past. And he says, I want to be present with you. What do you need? What do you want from me, Jesus says. He's fully present. He, he lives with urgency everywhere he goes. Uh, all, all through the Gospel of Mark, you'll see this word, immediately. Even when he's wandering up and around in North Galilee, his hometown, uh, it looks like he's kind of going haphazard, but immediately, everything, not a minute is wasted of his life. He didn't spend two hours playing Call of Duty this week. Urgency. Intentionality. He spent every minute purposefully. And some, I mean, his idiosyncrasies, the patterns of his life, it makes me want to know him more and live like him. He's quite an example, right, to, to follow and live like. And, and at the same time, even as his example is convicting, he, in his grace, he still is drawing me towards him to live like him. The patterns of his life, man, the disciples are idiots, and the visceral reactions all through the gospel of Mark. There's no room for like a shoulder shrug response to Jesus. Eh, he's okay. Maybe I'll get around to knowing him sometime. That doesn't exist in the Gospel of Mark. You're either compelled to embrace him or to renounce him and want him dead. There's no middle ground. All through the Gospel, this phrase, they were amazed at who he was. He's this kind of paradigm breaker, shifter. And they're completely amazed at who he is and what he's doing. It starts in the very beginning in chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. They're astonished at his teaching when he comes and teaches them in the temple. For he taught them how, as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And then later, he commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. His fame spreads because they're astonished and amazed at who he is. Everywhere he goes, people are astonished and amazed and embrace him or they're astonished and amazed and they reject him. There's this one story where uh, this paralytic comes to Jesus and he, he forgives the guy's sins and he uh, helps him to walk. He, he raises him up. The guy takes his mat and walks off. In that moment, you see this polarized and visceral effect. He, you, you got this one crowd that looks at him and they're like, wow, this is unbelievable. We've never seen anyone like him. We want to follow him and embrace him. And then you got the religious crowd that's right there. And they say, We want him dead. We want him dead. If he if he's claiming to be who he says he is, he's a real threat to our power and and he's speaking like one who blasphemes because he's claiming he's God. We want him dead. We don't want any part of his life. The visceral response means there's no room for a shoulder shrug. We have to choose, are we going to embrace him? Or reject him. Some of us just need to take time to look at who he is to be compelled one way or the other. Lastly, he is no celebrity. He's no celebrity. I love this about it. You know, these different moments when it is like fame is growing. Here's what he'll say. You know, he'll heal someone. They were blind, now they can see, and he'll say, Shh, don't tell anyone. All through the book of Mark, it says this. A theologians call this the messianic secret. And he, through the book, he, he, over and over, you know, Peter will say, He's the Christ. And all the disciples are like, This is the anointed one, the one we're all waiting for. This is Jesus. And he goes, Shh, don't tell. Don't tell anyone. My time's not come yet. Uh, he, he, you know, he, he'll heal someone. And, and, and then I love it because, like he said, he, he says, Don't tell anyone. And with the first thing they do, they just run everywhere and tell everyone. <laughs> They're you know, like, he changed my life. I can't, I can't keep my mouth shut, right? So uh, they're running around telling everyone. But, but we realize why. Because he's living with such intentionality for all of eternity. See, he doesn't want to be Santa Claus. He wants to be our Savior, And you don't want people running to him just for healing of this and that physical ailment. But here's what he wants to do. He wants to go because there's this phrase that says, after one of these guys told someone, the crowds gather. And there's this phrase that says, he couldn't go into their towns and teach the good news, the gospel to them. Because it was so crowded. They they were packing him out so much. They, They wanted this physical healing. And they were missing the eternal healing that he was offering them. He lived with such intentionality with eternity in mind. that He wanted to tell everybody About who he is and what he's doing, before his moment came when he would go to the cross and do it for us and bring salvation through his own death. He's no celebrity. Actually, he kind of he loved the outcasts and and those who were pushed to the margins. He 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 loved kids, right? He 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 drew close to women. Uh, Gentiles and outsiders he, he went towards uh, tax collectors and sinners right in the first century these are huge no-no's and he is running towards them he's no celebrity he's no celebrity which is so refreshing in today's world of celebrity pastors or celebrity people who are dropping like flies who you think they're one way and they're not and Jesus says, I'm not living for a platform, right? Like, uh, if, if I'm a teacher going into my classroom on Monday morning, I'm here to live faithfully and quietly with a refreshing obscurity and faithfulness to my God. And I'm going to give my life away with excellence and creativity for Him. That's, that's all I care about. I don't, I don't want to praise a man to get, get on a platform with a spotlight. Or if I'm a pastor, right, I say, man, I want to live in A refreshing obscurity and faithfulness to my God that we might be a people who would live for Jesus here in Silver Spring and slowly and healthily see the good news of the gospel multiply through and among us. It's refreshingly obscure. Actually, when Jesus kind of captures his life, here's what he says I'm about. is not a celebrity, right? Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So he shows up quietly on the scene and he says, I want to live to pour myself out for your betterment. If there's service to be done, I want to do it. I want to give myself away for you. That's how Jesus lives his life. And with such intentionality in every moment to serve and give himself away. And then he lives it that, that he would ransom us that his death would be the payment for our sin, that he'd make us sons and daughters uh, completely intentional with his eternal purpose in mind. He says, I came to do just that. I'm no celebrity, Jesus says. I'm not your Santa Claus, I'm your Savior. It's the beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of our God. It's a beginning. It's just this cataclysmic change in this story of Jesus' life. And, but even the end of Mark is the beginning. <laughs> uh, because at the end of the book of Mark, we have this kind of to-be-continued moment. And, and the women have run to the tomb to, to embalm Jesus, put spices on him, so his body, and actually the text says his corpse, would decay. But they show up there, and the tomb is empty. And there's an angel there and says, uh, he has risen just like he told you three times he was going to do. So go tell his followers, he'll meet you guys in Galilee. Just make, just make your way uh, and he'll transform your lives. He'll transform the whole world. But we're left with this cliffhanger and it says, and they were terrified. And we just wonder, man, what, what's the rest of the story going to look like? And we're sitting here in Silver Spring 2,000 some years later. But that was the beginning of all he's doing now and even the beginning of all eternity. We're waiting for the good news of Jesus Christ who changed the world then, is changing the world now and will live with us for all of eternity. That's the beginning and the end of the book of Mark, of new beginnings. But right in the middle, right in that pivot point, is our invitation into this story, into the life of Jesus Because we're not supposed to stand as kind of passive bystanders and and observe Jesus' life and say, oh, I agree with this, or I don't agree with that, or maybe I'll memorize that verse, or this, or that. It's supposed to be life-changing to meet the very Son of God. It's the beginning of a life transformation in our own lives and in our communities around us and all the world. And and so to bring us in, to invite us into that moment, there's there's this pivot point in chapter 8, verses 27 to 28, because here's what's happening. In the first half of the story, Jesus is up in Galilee and it's all swimming. It's just great. He's famous. He's healing lots of people. You start to get these inklings that there's these enemies. But then, right in the middle, this pivot, this turn, Jesus starts talking about his death and heading to Jerusalem to die on a cross. And at that pivot is our invitation to the most important question that you'll ever have to answer. Here's the moment. It's Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and following. Jesus is as high north as they're going to be, and now they're going to make this beeline towards Jerusalem, and the tone of the whole gospel changes right in the middle of chapter 8. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, that's way up north, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Uh, you know what's the word on the street uh, who do people say I Jesus am and, and they told him oh John the Baptist others say Elijah and others one of the prophets and you know all these kind of amazing people the, uh, they're waiting for Elijah to show up on the scene and, and be the prophet who's going to pave the way for the Lord remember that's the same very language at the beginning of the book of Mark oh uh, no, maybe you're John the Baptist who's beheaded now you're back to life you're, he was amazing maybe, maybe this is who he is or maybe you're just one of the prophets they answer yeah, who do the people say that I am But then you can kind of picture Jesus leaning in a little bit. And he says, But who do you say that I am? (laughs) Who do you say that I am? This is the most important question we'll ever ask ourselves. Who do we say that Jesus is? He's going to give us a peek into the answer of who he is, right? Like uh, Right away, he's going to start talking about his death. And he's going to say, I'm the one who's going to die for the sins of the world. I'm going to hang on a cross in your place. And if you want to follow me, he'll go on to say, he'll say, you've got to die to yourself, to, to your own priorities, to, to, to the false gods you've been chasing in your life, in your, in your family, in your workplace, and, and wherever you've been seeking uh, security and identity and purpose and joy and peace. You, you, you give those up and you find those in me. He says, you've got to die to all that and find life in me. It actually may even cost you your life like it did for all of his disciples. And he gives a peek in the answer there. But then he also takes them up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they see his glory. And they're like, whoa. He's greater than any king we've ever met, any prophet we've ever met. He's the one we're waiting for. He's the very son of God. And actually, it's probably at that moment that the skies themselves open and the Father of God speaks out and says, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. It's at this moment of pivot. And then he pulls back the curtain a little bit to the answer to say, I'm the one who's going to die for you. And I'm the one who's more glorious than you ever know. And then they're going to see it take place when he goes to the cross. It's the most important question you'll ever ask or answer in your life. Because in losing our lives, as Jesus goes on right to say here, we'll find it in him. This is a question you and I have to ask today, maybe kind of in this one-time way. We say, once and for all, who am I living for? Who is this Jesus, right? If he's the very son of God, God himself, and, and man who lives this perfect life in my place, a life I know I don't live, and then he dies on a cross in my place. His, his glory <laughs> shines forth as he, he is sacrificed for me. And then he, he, he raises to newness of life and his resurrection. If, if this is who he is, man, then, then I want to live for him. I want to trust him. I want to uh, find purpose in him, peace in him. I want to embrace him. In a one-time way, we got to ask that, right? Maybe you've never asked and answered that for yourself. Who is this Jesus to you? And maybe today is the day when you say, all right, look, I don't know all the answers. I know I'm a mess up, but I, I trust Him. I trust Him. I want to get to know who He is. I want to follow Him as best as I can. I, I trust Him. I, I embrace His grace this morning. Maybe for this one-time answer today, you say, He's my Savior. He's my friend. I just want to live for Him. Change your whole life. Change your family's life. Change your neighborhood's life. Change your whole country's life. Change the world's life. I, but this is a question we as Jesus followers have to ask every day in every piece of our lives as well. Who do I say he is today in the moment of my suffering? Things are not going the way I want them to. But who is my God? Who is this Jesus? Is he with me? Is he able to carry me? Is he good? Do I know his love for me? Who do I say that he is—the one of all glory and of great sacrifice? Who is he? In my loneliness, who do I say that he is today, wherever? I, in my jubilance, and man, I'm being blessed like crazy. I got the job I want. I got the family I want. Got the car I want. Who do I say he is? Is he the giver of all good things who I praise and give thanks to, or is this all about me and what I did? Every day we need to ask a question. And in every area of our lives, we need to start right here. It's the gospel. It's the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. Every area of my life. I'm a teacher going back to school. Who do I say that Jesus is? Is he with me? Is he going with me? Is he going to shape the way I teach and care for my kids? Or am I going to, is my boss my principal? As a stay-at-home mom, you look at what you're doing. You say, man, I am failing all these other moms. I'm reading Facebook. They are amazing. I'm terrible. That's kind of how every mom feels, by the way. Who is Jesus in that moment? Is he enough? Are you sufficient? Are you validated in who he is? And, and are you clinging to him for strength to disciple and care for these little kids in this time? Who is he in every day and every piece of our life? It will shape our response to every day of our life, it will shape our identity and every piece of who we are. As Mark goes on and ends his gospel, He spends, as I said, a disproportionate, a huge amount of time in the last week of Jesus' life. The disciples, they head towards Jerusalem. They're now in Jerusalem, and they, for all we know, they they may be at Mary's house, who's John Mark's mom. And they gather around the table together, and, and as they're eating, this is just a few days before Jesus is crucified. He took bread, and after blessing, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. He said, take, this is my body. All right, broken for you, and take this cup. And after he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I won't drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He's saying, I am doing something new in my life, my death, and my resurrection. My body will be broken for you and your sins to make you a son or daughter. My blood will be spilled as a sign of the new covenant that here I am to make you a son or daughter and dwell with you for all of eternity. And then a few days later, he finds himself in in front of two mock trials. He's condemned as guilty, though he's never done anything guilty in his whole life. And our king stands before Pilate, who's this Roman governor, in chapter 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? And Pilate, this Roman governor who has the authority to crucify. And Jesus answered Pilate, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, they used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was this man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do what he usually did for them. And Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for him Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple cloak, it's the color of royalty, and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him, they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down and homaged him. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of a purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And Jesus says to us, who do you say that I am? Might we this morning answer, you're you're my savior. You're my my best friend. You're the son of God. You're the one I've always waited for. Might we cling to him for life, for purpose, for peace in his death and his resurrection. Might we live every step of our days and step with him. And if you've not yet received him this morning, don't take communion as a reminder of who he is to you and what he's done. But this morning, would you receive him just in prayer? Would you by faith cling to him and say, I believe you are my Savior. I want to live my life for you. Would you become my friend? Let's take and eat and remember who our Jesus is and what he's done for us. Let's take and eat.